Do you have a friend in me? Yes, you have a friend in me. Um, hey, we are thrilled to kind of kick off uh, a new series tonight and uh, just to worship together. We're going to kind of look into God's Word a little bit, and if you're new, uh, we're going to take communion afterwards and give you space to, to do that, or if you just want to sit and think and reflect on what we're wrestling with tonight or just worship, and then we're going to close our service with another song of worship and just a quick announcement, so if you're new, that's kind of where we're going, but um, this idea of friending is a series we wanted to look at. We're going to have our teaching team tackle this, so I'm going to look at a couple. Uh, we've got Elisa Medina who's going to help, and Kimberly and Brian, and so we're just kind of looking into this idea of how do you build healthy, godly, and good friendships? And what does the Bible have to say about that? And so as we kind of get into this series, but tonight we're going to look at one of those ingredients. And But to kind of get us leaning into that a little bit, I want you to think about your closet at your house or at your apartment that has all of your shoes, okay? Can you picture it? It's, for some of you, it's really neat and tidy, for the rest of the 98% of us, uh, it's just like a pile of shoes, maybe, if you will, uh, that are there. So I want you to think of your shoe pile or maybe your shoe cleanliness if you've got like, how many of you have shoe organizers? Wow, half of you are impressive. The other half of us are normal. Uh, so uh, it's just okay. Um, but okay, you got the shoe organizer, whatever that is. So I want you to think of your shoes. You got the picture in your mind? Okay, how many of you have more than five pairs of shoes? Okay, more than 15 pairs of shoes. More than 20 pairs of shoes. Okay, more than 30 pairs of shoes. More than 40 pairs of shoes to the gentleman in the hat. So, so listen, I am not talking about or trying to identify anything. I'm not talking about your shopping habits. I'm just, I want you to picture your shoes because the reality is you are comfortable in your shoes. Am I right? that you've got shoes that you're comfortable with and you enjoy that. But we have another opportunity here where we actually go and do something and we take our comfortable shoes and we trade them in. Can you think of what I'm thinking about? It's when we show up to go bowling. Who's with me? How many of you have been bowling before, all right? Now, unless you're like my friend Travis, who probably has his own bowling shoes and maybe a collection of them, you do you, man. You do you. Uh, but the rest of us, we show up at the bowling alley and we take our comfortable shoes and we hand them to a stranger we've never met before. And they hand us strange shoes, don't they? And we put them on. We don't even think about the reality that th hundreds of people have worn these particular shoes. But... We put on these other shoes. How many of you bowl with other shoes, right? You, you walk around in them. You, you kind of experience life, if you will, a little bit in someone else's shoes. And that's what I want you to keep in mind. As we dive into like this ingredient that we're going to look at tonight of what, is, what does it make? What are some of those things that we need to make more and more a part of our life if we want to have healthy, godly, and good relationships and friendships? And so as we dive into this series, looking at this, this idea of being in someone else's shoes is important with this idea of friending. We know statistically that studies have shown for years that people who have good friendships live longer, have a better construct to life and a better understanding of going on and experiences in life. There was a study, the Grant study, done by Harvard that followed subjects for 75 years. 
How many of you would say that's a long time to follow a group, right? And here's what they discovered. Strong relationships are the most important ingredient to well-being in a long life. Okay, intuitively we know this, that friendships matter and to be in relationship. We were created and designed to be in relationship with God. That matters. But it also matters that we have good friendships one to another with the people in our lives. Now, that may be that you're here and you're like extreme extrovert and you're friends with everybody and you've got a hundred best buddies. For some of you, you may be more introverted and you've got two or three people that you say, these are my deep friends that I'm connected to, but friendships matter. We want to look at some of those insights. And tonight I want to look at this one topic that I think is probably the, the main building block, if you will, to healthy, godly, good relationships and friendships, and that is empathy. The ability to have compassion with people. Empathy is defined like this, the capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing from within that person's frame of reference. The capacity to place oneself into another's position. Empathy is seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another, feeling with the consciousness of another. That this idea to walk, maybe, if you will, in someone else's shoes. The phrase we've heard, we've used, but this idea to be with them. The empathy is the ability to feel with people. Now, Scripture, all throughout, Old Testament, New Testament, has many different words that describe this idea of what does it mean to feel with people uh, in Hebrew and Greek. See, the most common word is this one. Uh, see if you can pronounce it. You ready? Splagnizomai. That's fun to say, Okay. It's to be moved in the inner parts, to have compassion, to be moved with compassion. Now, in our cultural context, we understand this idea, okay, to, to see something, to reach out to something, we understand we, when people say, I'm moved, my heart is moved. We understand what that means. For a Greek culture, they would say, my gut was moved. I was moved deep within my gut. You ever had that feeling, just like deep within? For the Hebrew people, it was within their bowels, they were moved. How many of you have been moved in your bowels before? Okay, so you understand how the Hebrews were thinking. Okay, so the next time you're in the bathroom, right, and people are knocking on the door to get in, just say, look, I'm working on building empathy, okay? Just good bathroom humor in church is awesome. So this idea, this is, we understand what this means. To say the ability to understand someone else's perspective might just be one of the most important components to having and maintaining and developing healthy friendships that are godly and good and enriching to our lives. If you think about your healthy relationships that you have in life, my hunch is when you think of the people who are your friends, who you would say, these are healthy friendships, my hunch is they are friendships filled with empathy. We're connected with people who have the ability to not just hear words that you're saying, but they identify, they connect with you. And my hunch is the opposite is also true. That if you think of people who are acquaintances in life and that you don't feel a sense of connection to, my hunch is you don't have much empathy exchange within that. And so empathy is this important part of building healthy friendships, of building compassion. And we see this all throughout Scripture, from God to us, and this encouragement for us to others. 
Think about it this way, that all throughout the scriptures we see the heart of God describing this empathy and compassion for us. Words like this in Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we're formed, he remembers that we are mere dust. Or Psalm 56 says this, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in a bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Do you know that every tear you shed, God sees? He knows. I mean, think about that. The creator of the heavens and the earth is also moved with such compassion for you that he not only notices, but he collects the tears that that you struggle through. That's an amazing reality that God has moved with compassion to us. And we also see throughout scripture that he longs for us to have that compassion poured into us to then therefore to move that forward for other people. You think of verses like this. Remember the prodigal son story? The father's moved with compassion and begins to run to the son who's even rejected and wished him dead. And God says, Jesus says, that's the heart of the father to be moved like this. Romans 12, 15 I think one of the most practical verses in all the Bible, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I am convinced that if marriages just practiced that verse, they would be richer and deeper and healthier. That if parents and children just practiced that verse, lived out in the home, to rejoice with those who rejoice, when people are happy that you're happy with them, that when they're sad, you're not trying to give them a coach pep talk of how to overcome it and a three-step plan to how to move forward. There's a time for that. But you're just sad with them. And to identify and to connect one to another. First Corinthians chapter 12 talks about we're all parts of the body of Christ. And he writes these words. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, well, then every part rejoices. There's this connection of empathy, compassion. Paul writes, carry each other's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ, that you would lift up one another. Hebrews 13.3 says, continue to remember those who are in prison as if you were together with them, and those who are mistreated as you yourself were suffering. This deep connection, all rooted back to this one verse that Jesus said at the whole end of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he would have given hundreds of times. Matthew seven twelve, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and this way you fulfill the law and the prophets, the golden rule, if you've ever heard it called that. Jesus is saying, he's modeling, he's showing us, God is moved with compassion and empathy to you. And he longs for you to reciprocate that and pass that on to the people around you. If you want to build healthy, godly, and good friendships, this is one of the basic building blocks of healthy friendships. The ability to walk in someone else's shoes. And I know for some of you, you're type A, uh, you're a task-driven person, you want to accomplish things and you just shoot direct. And so this whole idea of empathy seems too flowery. And I just want to remind you, it's okay to be you. It's not okay to be a jerk. 
that empathy is not just reserved for introverts or reserved for people who are maybe a softer side or whatever that may be in your own mind. Empathy is a description of our Savior. This ability to be moved with compassion was all throughout his life. Jesus is saying, if you want to have a heart of following after me, you have to learn to stand in other people's shoes, to express empathy and compassion that's needed in the moment. That doesn't mean truth doesn't come visit either. Grace and truth, Jesus is full of, both. But it does mean that this idea of compassion, one of the most famous stories Jesus tells, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And Jesus tells a story after someone's trying to push him to say, who's my neighbor, how do I show love, blah, 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 blah. And he tells the story, right, of people who were religious, who saw someone hurt and passed on by. But it was their arch enemy who sees and is moved within his gut, moved with compassion. That's that word again. And actually does something about the situation, responds and takes action. Jesus is saying, this is what is to mark your life. He demonstrated this all over, that we are hardwired for this. You can do this. It's not that you can't. We live in a culture that tends to suppress this because we live in a culture that says it's all about you. And so when it's all about you, well, then we don't think about other people. We just think about us. And we have a tendency in our culture to kind of push this to the side. But I think we see throughout the life and the teachings of Jesus and in his, the way he lived life, this modeling to say this has to become something. And we're hardwired for this. We think about brain research. We've only really in the last 50 years started beginning researching a little bit more of how our brain works. But I want, you to, I want to tell you a little bit about mere neurons. Your brain is filled with, filled with neurons that are firing and giving impulses and giving information to you all the time, even right now. But mirror neurons make up about 20% of your neurons. And there's a, a researcher um, who just goes by Rama. He's been doing some TED Talks and writing about this. And he kind of calls these mirror neurons actually empathy neurons. He describes it like this. If you're sitting in a chair, let's picture yourself at a doctor's office and you're there to get a shot, right? Or maybe you've got your kid there and they're there to get a shot. If you're the one getting a shot, the neurons will fire in your brain when the needle goes into your arm to tell you what's happening, you will flinch, right? We all flinch. That's the reality of it. But if I'm sitting in the chair next to you or across from you watching you get a shot, do you know what happens? How many of you are parents and you've taken your kids to get shots and when the needle goes in their arms, don't you flinch a little bit? Mirror neurons. This ability, empathy neurons, to say, ooh, and you feel that. How many of you watch stupid human trick videos, right, where people crash and burn and fall off cliffs, wreck bikes and all that kind of stuff, and every single one of you, when that happens in that moment, what happens in your body? Like you flinch, right? You, you cringe up when you see that happen. Why? Mirror neurons. You are hardwired to react and, and to have this empathy for someone else that you're going, okay, that was stupid to even do that, but that hurt me watching it a little bit because you have this reflection that we are hardwired by our creator to feel for others, to feel with people, empathy. This ability to say people with empathy are more likely to help each other. It reduces prejudice and racism. It creates better bosses and creates better doctors. 
people who can learn to live with empathy. During the Holocaust, studies show that people who were helping hide the Jews in that moment were people who were raised in a home where they were taught about walking in someone else's shoes. They lived with empathy, and their heart went out. You know this to be true in your own life, in the small experiences that you have where your heart is moved because empathy and compassion begin to be. Empathy is this relational glue that we all need in our friendships. Frederick Buechner says this, compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside someone else's skin. It's the knowledge that there can never really be any peace or joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. That's heavy. That has a cost to it, to live with this kind of compassion, to live with this kind of empathy. But empathy is what connects us one to another. If you think of your best friend, one of your best friends, that if they were to call you tonight and say, I've got to meet with you tomorrow, you would drop everything to go do it. Why? Because you are moved with empathy and compassion for them. There's other people that would call you, you wouldn't even answer the phone, right? It's because you have this connection of empathy and compassion to them. Now, throughout this whole series, we're going to kind of return back and look at Jesus in, snaps, in snapshots because the reality is Jesus modeled great friendship. So we'll return to him. Whether Whatever you think about Jesus, maybe you're just here and someone invited you, and I think it's awesome that you're here. But you, you cannot deny the magnet, um, kind of the people magnet that Jesus was, that people who didn't even agree with Jesus were drawn to Jesus. There was something about the way he lived that moved people. The most described emotion of Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go read him, is compassion. Jesus was moved with empathy. We see multiple examples of it all throughout uh, the gospel accounts. Matthew 9, 36 says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. It's that Greek word again. It's the most described word used for Jesus and how he saw the world. He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, harassed like sheep without a shepherd. The most described emotion of Jesus is this. The question is, is it the most described emotion of your life or mine? There's an interesting story uh, in Luke chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can go there. Luke chapter 8, toward the tail end of, of chapter 8, is Jesus is showing up in this town, and Jairus is there. Jairus is kind of this um, leader in the temple, maybe a modern-day worship leader you would put the equivalent to, and his daughter is dying. And he comes, and he falls at Jesus' feet, and he says, Jesus, I, I know I've seen you heal people. My daughter is kind of on her last leg and on her deathbed. Would you come and heal her? And Jesus is moved. And he begins to move with this crowd of people toward Jairus' house. The, the fascinating thing is Jesus is probably around the height of his popularity, so to speak. And there was throngs of crowds of people who were all around him. And people are literally, the text is describing that, or people are, are almost crushing Jesus. There's so many people. Anyone ever been in a large crowd like that, maybe exiting a stadium before? And you feel like cattle, don't you? You're like herded cattle who are just moving. You can't go left. You can't go right. You just got to keep going straight and hope you don't fall down, right? 
That's the description of this moment as Jesus is moving to Jairus' house, but there's another person who's unnoticed in this crowd. And there's this woman who's been dealing with this issue of blood for 12 years, meaning she's got something going on in her body that she can't stop this. And she has tried everything, going to every kind of clinic and every doctor to figure out what's wrong. And she has spent all of her money trying to solve the problem, and yet it continues. And it's in this crowd where she's heard about this man who can, be, who can help heal her. And on maybe her last attempt to find healing, she's weaving her way through this crowd, bumping into people. And in a Jewish context, you have to understand, she's unclean. Not welcome into a setting like this. Not welcome at the temple. She can't be there. And so in this setting, she's running and trying to grab the edge of Jesus' cloak. What's fascinating, I think it's in Malachi 4, it talks about there will be healing in his wings. The edges of a cloak of a Jewish rabbi were called the wings. And so she's clinging to this promise that maybe there's something about this guy who can heal me and help me. So she reaches out and she touches the edge of his cloak as all these people are bumping in and then she slips back in through the crowd and she recognizes that she's instantly healed. Can you imagine that moment for her? Twelve years. Think about that. Put yourself in her shoes. Twelve years of isolation. Twelve years of not being welcomed to the temple. Twelve years of not being included in giant social settings like this because of her uncleanliness. And suddenly suddenly she's healed. And the fascinating thing is what Jesus does is he stops. Now when you're in a giant crowd and people are bumping into you and pushing you, and you're walking with the crowd, that's where we're going. Who needs help? Jairus. Jairus' daughter needs help. That's where we're going. That's the mission. And in the middle of this moment, Jesus stops, and he says this incredible question. Who touched me? (laughs) Peter next says this. Uh, who hasn't touched you? <laughs> That's kind of what I'm, I'm thinking. You could read it in the text, and, and Peter's like, uh, uh, Jesus, I, I've been like touched 1,500 times. Um, and like, we're walking in a huge crowd, people pumping it, like we're almost crushed here. Like, who hasn't bumped into you? Like, duh. And I love Jesus' response. No, 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 someone touched me. Power has gone out from me. What? Jesus notices. He notices what everybody else misses. One of the most beautiful things about Jesus is you can never go unnoticed around him. Friend, you may think you can hide. You may think that he doesn't see. But you never go unnoticed around Jesus. And he stops in this moment. And this woman comes forward, seeing that she can't hide. And here's what the text says, verse 47. When the woman realized she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell at her knees in front of them. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And then he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Why did Jesus stop? He'd already healed her. Why did he stop? Because he's moved with compassion and empathy, not just to heal her physically, 
but to heal her relationally. Your faith has healed you. You're now clean. Welcome back into society, into friendships, to worship at the temple. You are no longer the stigma. You are no longer what you were with this ailment. You are now a daughter. Think about the tenderness of that moment for her. Now, Jesus goes on. Jairus' daughter actually dies. He tells the mourners to stop. She's just sleeping. He goes in. He says, daughter, wake up. She wakes up. He raises someone from the dead. What? Okay. But the crazy moment in here is Jesus has enough power to do the miracle that he was sent on mission to do and enough power to notice the unnoticeable and to do both. Why? Because he is moved with empathy and compassion. It's the most described emotion of him. Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is moved toward you. That is an amazing theological reality. And so maybe some simple takeaways for us as we kind of wrestle with this, okay, what does it look like to be a person of empathy, a person that's moved with compassion like Jesus? First off, empathy is different than sympathy. Empathy is different than sympathy. Sympathy is having pity or being sorry for someone. Empathy is different than that. In fact, Brene Brown is an author who's written several things, actually done a TED Talk on this whole idea of vulnerability and looking at, and I think it's still the most watched TED Talk Uh, out there and she talks about this idea of empathy and vulnerability in that and what is the difference between empathy and sympathy and and I thought she actually says it way better than I could so here's two minutes of a little cartoon clip that someone made of her talk to help explain this difference between what is empathy and why is it different than sympathy so let's watch this so what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy empathy fuels connection Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful. 
and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. What makes something better is connection. It's not necessarily a coaching of here's the three steps you need to do, or at least in the silver lining. It's just being with people. There'll be a moment to whisper wisdom. There'll be a moment to give some insight, but not initially. It's just learning to be with, to empathize with. Uh, Teresa Wiseman, her four things again, involves uh, the ability to see the world as the other person sees it, to be non-judgmental, to understand another person's feelings, and then communicate that you understand that person's feelings. What if we just did that as a culture? What if we just did that in our friendships? We want healthy friendships. You know what that was? Romans 12, 15. Mourn with those who mourn. That you're with them in that moment. Henry Nouwen says this, the friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in our hour of grief or bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, but face with us the reality of our powerlessness, that is a friend who cares. We want to be those kind of friends. That to learn to be fully present. For some of you, I'll speak for myself, that's part of the challenge. It's just to be fully present. I struggle with that. Of often wanting to be somewhere else, or I've got three, four other things going on that I, I want to tackle and go do, and and yet I just need to be here. I still got work to do. But I want to be a good friend. I know you do too. And so learning this idea of empathy in life matters. Suffering, secondly, suffering builds our empathy. It can. That when you go through the struggles of life and, and go through some suffering in your own, if we don't try to hide from it, and we actually kind of lean into it a little bit, we can learn through our suffering and develop in empathy so that we can then empathize with other people. It's like a schoolyard where we can learn a little bit of empathy. Second uh, Corinthians 1 talks about this idea that God wants to be known as the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we then can turn and comfort others. It's the fact that God can empathize and has compassion with you and he wants to pour that into you so that then you can use that for others. God doesn't ever waste pain. He loves to recycle that to be a blessing to others. It doesn't mean what happened to you was good. It just means that God can use you to be a blessing for others. You know this to be true. 
that when people are going through a certain thing in life and you have gone through a similar situation, don't, don't your heart just move a little bit more to jump in and try to empathize and be with those people? When we suffer, it's a way for us to learn empathy. God won't leave us there, but he often will teach us the most in the midst of that season. Those lessons help develop empathy within us. And lastly, empathy is an antidote to judgment. A little cultural coaching here. We live in a culture that is so quick to judge, don't we? Listen, you live in your own mind where you, me too, are so quick to judge. To grow in empathy, we have got to grow in this because it will help fight against this idea of judgment in our culture and in our lives of how we navigate. How many of you drive? How many of you judge while you drive? Okay, at least you admit it. Um, All of us do it. My grandfather used to, when he would get angry, someone would cut him off, he would knock on the windshield. And I thought, why are you doing that? He's like, well, I don't want to appear angry. I just want them to know that I know that they did wrong. And I was like, oh. I started driving. I found myself doing that. I still do that in my heart now. I don't do it on the windshield. But in my heart, I'm like, I'm judging. I may have judged some of you driving here. I don't know. I'm sorry. What if we just ask the question before we launch into judgment? What if people are doing the best they can? What if before we launch into judgment, we just ask the simple question, what if people are doing the best they can? Wouldn't you want people to say that and ask that about you? That when you go through life and you're navigating things and you're doing the best you can to make judgment calls and decisions in life, that people might give you the benefit of the doubt and say, well, I think she's doing the best that she can. That if we live that way, maybe that would help grow our compassion. Here's the question of the night. Are you growing in your empathy and compassion? Friend, that may be the best measurement to show you where you are as a disciple of Jesus. Listen, if it is the most described emotion of Jesus throughout the gospel context, I don't think that's by accident. What if growing to be a disciple of Jesus means I am growing in my empathy and compassion? Are you better at that today than you were two years ago? That may be the question to wrestle with the most. And it may lead you to the prayer to say, God, I want to grow like Jesus in this. I don't know how to get there. I may not have it all figured out, but I want to get better at empathy and compassion and to seek that out, to grow that. You think about this, uh, maybe here's a question. Who are the people that you are quick to judge? Maybe it's people at the other end of the political spectrum, maybe people at the other end of the theological spectrum, maybe people at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Try fostering relationships with people who are different than you, spending time with them. It will force you to grow in empathy, or you'll come across as a jerk. 
So you grow in this. Empathy is a relational glue that connects us and keeps us together. And no one modeled this better than Jesus. You think about the point of Jesus. The beautiful part of the whole incarnation is this. Jesus took off his shoes and rented some of ours. And he came. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That Jesus came. Incarnation literally means in the skin. It's God in a bod. Jesus came. And we don't have a high priest who can't identify and empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who didn't even sin. And his compassion moved him to leave heaven, to come here on a rescue mission for you and for me. Why? Because his empathy and compassion moved him to do so. How are you doing at growing in empathy and compassion? If it's the most described emotion of Jesus, friend, may that be the most described emotion of you and of me. So Father, as we pray and kind of conclude and move our way into communion and to worship, um, we're, we're blown away by what you did in coming on a search and rescue mission for us. What that means the beauty of that, that you would leave, not expect us to try to make our way to you, but you are moved with compassion and empathy to see our brokenness and our mayhem that was going on around and it moved you to say I'm coming that you might know I care. And you're moved with compassion. I pray that you would raise up your church, not just elements, but your church, God. to be a movement of compassion. We so need that. We fail when we try to do it any other way. We want to see your spirit sweep this city, this nation, this world. To bring your grace and your truth, yes, but to be moved with your compassion. It's what drove you to the cross. To take a penalty and to pay for a penalty that we couldn't pay in our own. You took off your shoes and you put on rented ones of ours. To take a journey that we couldn't even do and you did it on our behalf. And so it's in your life and your death and most importantly your resurrection that we remember that we ask that you would empower us to be people who live like you did, Jesus. Filled with empathy and compassion in our friendships, that that would be a blessing in our parenting relationships, in our relationships we have at the office, the people around us in our neighborhoods. Would you move us to be moved by what moves your heart? We ask that in Jesus' name.